Listener discretion is advised. This episode features serious discussions about terminal illness and assisted suicide. Please keep this in mind when deciding if, how, and when you'll listen. For resources on these topics, visit spotify.com slash resources. Death comes for everyone. Under normal circumstances, when that will happen is a mystery. But for Dr. Jack Kevorkian's patients, the time was known, and it was their decision to end their suffering. But Kevorkian's work was controversial. It challenged the very foundations upon which Western medicine was built. Even now, the right to die on one's own terms remains up for debate. For religious groups, bereaved children, and medical activists alike, Kevorkian's legacy poses a bold question. Is physician-assisted death a mercy or murder? This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every year, thousands of medical students take the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath. They choose to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate these doctors, nurses, and medical professionals. We'll explore the specifics of how medical killers operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm delighted to offer Alastair some medical insight to our first installment of the case of Dr. Jack Kevorkian, the infamous physician who had a unique way to express his passion for death. Some of you may remember this story that traveled around the world. I sure do. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first of two episodes about Jack Kevorkian, a doctor from Michigan who assisted in the deaths of over 130 terminally ill patients. This week, we'll examine Kevorkian's early life, as well as the first court case that brought his cause to the global stage. Next week, we'll track Kevorkian's continued legal battles as he fought for an individual's right to die, becoming a martyr in the process. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details.
It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On June 4th, 1990, Dr. Jack Kevorkian sat in the back of his white 68 Volkswagen van talking with one of his patients for the last time. Her name was Janet Adkins, and she wanted to die. To any passing observer, the 54-year-old may have appeared fine, but she and her family knew things were far from okay. Janet had been diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's. Before the cruel disease robbed her of her memory and independence, Janet wanted to take her life on her own accord while the decision was still hers to make. As she talked with Dr. Kevorkian in his van at a Michigan park, the doctor asked her one last time if she was ready to die. Janet laid down in a bed set up for her, and she was attached to the so-called suicide machine. Six minutes later, she was gone. Soon after that, all eyes were on Dr. Kevorkian. When Janet Atkins passed, news of Kevorkian's involvement spread throughout the nation and the entire world for that matter. I remember the massive amount of coverage on this story at the time, and it definitely fueled public awareness about an issue doctors had, until then, primarily debated in critical care settings. It really opened up an important dialogue about medically-assisted euthanasia, and despite Kevorkian's process, his sentiments resonated with many healthcare professionals. He was quite a polarizing figure in the medical community, and the oddity of the whole case and his methods turned Kevorkian into an instant pop culture celebrity. While it was far from the first time a doctor had helped a patient die peacefully, his human killing machine caused a bit of an uproar, to say the least. Articles claimed that Dr. Kevorkian was obsessed with death. His later actions would seem to confirm this to an extent. But even in his earlier years, the controversial doctor had a knack for breaking convention. Born in Pontiac, Michigan in 1928 to Armenian immigrant parents, Jack Kevorkian was a bright kid who excelled in school, spoke multiple languages, and taught himself to play three instruments. The Kevorkians raised their son as a Christian, but he never felt connected to his faith. He challenged long-held Christian beliefs, doubted the miracles the Bible proposed as fact, and opposed the divine answers so readily given by the clergy. By the time he was a teenager, he left it behind, never to return. Instead of a higher purpose, he looked for higher education. In 1946, he enrolled at the University of Michigan as an engineering major, but it wasn't fulfilling. So, as a sophomore, he switched over to a pre-med track. He discovered an interest in pathology, the study of disease and injury. 
He graduated from the University of Michigan Medical School in 1952 and entered an internship program at Detroit's Henry Ford Hospital. There, Dr. Kevorkian had an encounter with a patient that changed his life. One day, while making his usual rounds, he saw a woman with pale skin and a distended stomach. She was slowly dying from liver cancer and very obviously in pain. In a retrospective interview with Vanity Fair, he later said, It looked like she was pleading for death with her eyes, but we couldn't give her that. We had to keep her going. Medical care was very different 70 years ago, and a lot of the pain management tactics we currently regard as standard of care were in their infancy back then. Aspirin and opiates, like morphine, were very common for suffering patients, as they are today, but the medical arena of pain management didn't really actualize until the 1960s. The 50s were an interesting time in that the country was still reeling from World War II and treating our veterans helped the medical community confirm and cement the notion that physical pain can have a deep psychological impact. As such, it became more commonplace for doctors to address the mental aspects of pain, so barbiturates were often prescribed to relieve anxiety and other emotional reactions to their pain. However, this eventually opened a pretty big can of worms for the field of addiction, but that's for another episode. It's true that doctors at that point had less adequate and fewer targeted pain management tools, but that didn't diminish their commitment to patient care and comfort. There's no doubt that seeing a patient in agony filled them with incredible empathy, which is surely what Jack Kevorkian experienced. The young doctor was unable to shake the woman's pain from his mind. It made him start to question the conventional practice of keeping a patient alive at all costs. 24-year-old Kevorkian studied the work of ancient Greek and Roman medical professionals and learned that many of them had handled things differently. If a patient wasn't recovering, they often felt it was best to let sickness run its course. They believed that reducing or eliminating a patient's suffering was more important. Fascinated, Kevorkian continued to research. He wanted to determine if there was a precise visual way to indicate if a patient was dead that didn't require a medical device. Dr. Kevorkian regularly photographed the eyes of dying patients to see if he could catalogue the exact moment of death. He published his findings in 1956, titling the study The Fundus Oculi and The Determination of Death. The results were inconclusive, so the paper didn't make any notable waves in the medical community. It did, however, give Dr. Kevorkian a reputation. Some of the staff at the hospital began referring to him as Dr. Death. This didn't deter him. In 1959, 31-year-old Kevorkian published an article in the Journal of Criminal Law and Criminal Political Science, putting forward yet another controversial idea. He wrote, I propose that a prisoner condemned to death by due process of law be allowed to submit, by his own free choice, to medical experimentation under complete anesthesia as a form of execution in lieu of conventional methods. 
Essentially, Dr. Kevorkian was suggesting that criminals facing capital punishment could provide an opportunity to advance medicine. But people feared a program like that could expose prisoners to even more exploitation than they already faced. Appalled at such ideas, management at the University of Michigan Medical Center, where Dr. Kevorkian was completing his residency, asked him to leave the program. Undaunted, Dr. Kevorkian found another residency in 1959 at Michigan's Pontiac General Hospital. And he continued making controversial propositions. Blood donors were sometimes in short supply and transfusions were vital in hospitals. He suggested that there was an untapped resource, recently deceased patients. The Soviet army used this method during World War II, and Dr. Kevorkian argued that it was the same as any other organ donation. But the general public couldn't stomach his proposal. The idea of a dead person's blood flowing through a living patient tapped into something primal in people. So even though Dr. Kevorkian found that the process worked, the published study didn't pick up much steam and it further cast him as an outsider and made it difficult for him to find traction with his contemporaries. Frustrated, Kevorkian retreated into the arts. He took painting classes and spent his downtime creating works that explored themes of the afterlife, suffering, and dying. Perhaps his new hobby kept him from investigating such macabre concepts in his professional life which he was able to keep consistent for a time. Between 1970 and 1976, he worked at Saratoga General Hospital in Detroit. And despite the controversial articles that floated in his past, he rose through the ranks quickly, eventually serving as director of the pathology lab at the hospital. But success was never Kevorkian's primary goal. After his streak of promotions, Kevorkian retreated from medicine. In 1976, the 48-year-old packed his things and moved to Long Beach, California, hoping to focus on art and music. He still wrote articles for smaller European medical journals, but his big ideas never led to the medical advancements he was hoping for. It wasn't until 1984 that Dr. Kevorkian offered a new, daring proposition. Well, it was actually an old proposition, but with a new spin. That year, there had been an increase in prisoner executions. It reminded him of his earlier proposition for inmates facing capital punishment, offering them the choice to be euthanized under anesthesia so their bodies could be used for medical experiments. But now, Kevorkian had another thought. Their organs could be harvested for transplants. While somewhat morbid, this concept was just the jumping-off point, the springboards that catapulted Kevorkian towards his life's work. Up next, Kevorkian develops his method of physician-assisted death. 
They're role models, nurturers, and to many, the ultimate best friend. But what happens when Mommy Dearest has a dark side, one that's more criminal than caring? Find out in the Spotify original from Parcast, Malicious Moms. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of Malicious Moms. Every Sunday on Spotify, join me for a closer look at the moms who took their maternal instincts to illegal extremes. A beloved actress who would do anything for her child. A jilted ex who used her kids to take deadly revenge. Plus, a wife, a mistress, and an altercation with an axe you have to hear to believe. In this podcast collection, learn the dire lengths some women went to help their children and how others used motherhood to carry out their misdeeds. Sometimes true crime can be a real mother. Follow Malicious Moms free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In 1984, 56-year-old Dr. Jack Kevorkian found a renewed interest in medically-assisted death. An uptick in executions inspired a new iteration of Kevorkian's decades-old idea. Rather than experimenting on inmates after they were put under anesthesia to die, Kevorkian wanted to harvest their organs. In the three decades since his first proposal, organ transplants were far more common and viable. They were also less shocking to the general public. For the doctor, utilizing those on death row for the benefits of healthcare seemed a win-win scenario. And for the first time, people were actually receptive to his idea. The California legislature had looked into a similar idea and invited Dr. Kevorkian to speak in front of its members. After decades of being shunned for his ideas, the doctor now had a viable platform to promote them. A more progressive state, California was one of the first to hear him out. But others soon followed. By 1987, Dr. Kevorkian was happy to see professional opinion shifting. And not just in America. Other countries had started to experiment with physician-assisted death. Not on inmates but on the general public. To investigate, Kevorkian headed to the Netherlands. The practice was only offered in some places and only for those suffering from terminal illnesses. Intrigued, Kevorkian shadowed doctors to learn their techniques and how they navigated the choppy legal waters. The Netherlands was one of the first countries in the world where doctors had formalized a practice of assisting in a patient's death. In 1984, the Royal Dutch Society for the Advancement of Medicine ruled favorably for the possibility of physician-assisted death. It was a progressive notion at the time, and in a sense, it still is. 
It's an extremely drawn-out course of action with strict necessary checks and balances, all of which help keep the process from being abused. Until 2001, however, it was still a treatment that hadn't been decriminalized, so doctors in the Netherlands had developed clever ways of getting around the legal hurdles surrounding assisted suicide. Their practices quickly became Kevorkian's new frontier. And like any curious researcher, he wanted to gain the necessary fieldwork. So in 1988, he moved back to Detroit, Michigan, where he opened a private practice advertising his work in, quote, bioethics and obiatry, a term he coined which means the study of death. While living in a small two-bedroom apartment above a flower shop, the 60-year-old doctor provided death counseling to patients reaching the end of their lives. Still, Dr. Kevorkian hadn't let go of his other objectives. His patients could be a benefit to the medical world. They may not have been inmates legally sentenced to death, but they did wish to die. Dr. Kevorkian saw no reason that they shouldn't be granted that. But it was against the law. Doctors were forbidden from participating in a patient's death. So, for the time being at least, Dr. Kevorkian was limited to providing his clients talk therapy alone. And he may have continued on that way had he not encountered the story of 38-year-old David Rivlin. When he was 19, David was in a surfing accident and developed quadriplegia, though he still had partial control of his right arm. Fifteen years later, David had a procedure to address an aneurysm on his spine. When he woke up, he found that he'd lost all sensation below his neck. He could no longer breathe on his own. He had to be placed in a nursing home, bedridden, attached to a device that artificially inflated and deflated his lungs. Given everything that happened to David, his quality of life took a dramatic turn for the worse. It's nearly impossible to imagine the psychological implications of being permanently bedridden and unable to use your own body. Unfortunately, David's inability to breathe normally would have made leaving the nursing home very unlikely as well. The trouble here is that these artificial breathing machines are cumbersome and require monitoring by trained professionals. Again, Alistair, it's incredibly difficult to even conceive of dealing with something like this, and it seems understandable that David was seriously considering putting an end to his suffering. Over the years, David grew despondent. He eventually asked for help to die. He reflected, I don't want to live an empty life lying helplessly in a nursing home for another 30 years. If you're in a situation where you have no freedom, then you have to make a change. And my change is death. But the physicians at the nursing home refused David's request, fearing the ethical and legal ramifications. So, in May of 1989, he submitted a legal appeal demanding to have doctors take him off of the ventilator. While that made its way through the courts, David suffered. 
desperate for relief, David placed an ad in a Detroit-area newspaper searching for a doctor to help him die. According to Vanity Fair, only one doctor initially responded. Jack Kevorkian. He wanted to help David, but worried about the legal risk. He needed to find a loophole. He concluded that if he could provide David with a painless medical method to end his own life, it would serve David's cause without getting him in trouble. In Michigan, there was no law against assisted suicide. Dr. Kevorkian set out to develop a machine that would meet this goal. He'd prime everything, and David would just have to hit the button that set his death in motion. However, before he could finish the design, the courts finally reached their verdict on David's request. In July of 1989, they determined that his desire to be taken off of his breathing machine was no different than any other patient refusing medical care. Days later, a doctor gave David sedation and honored his wishes. Shortly after, he passed away, free from a life he no longer wanted. David's death, while tragic, still fell into the realm of ethically sound medicine at the time. Interestingly, when you boil it down, his attending physician did exactly what Kevorkian wanted to do. The mechanics were different, but the concept was identical. It's always been the case that doctors are obligated to honor a patient's wishes, even if they refuse care. There are, of course, extenuating circumstances, but forcing treatment would, in almost all cases, be a violation of our oath to do no harm. Today, if a patient were to issue a request like David's, they'd need interviews and evaluations conducted by medical specialists, along with health records provided by their primary physician. It usually takes a couple of months before patients receive authorization due to all the legal and ethical prerequisites. While David inevitably struggled, waiting for government approval, he ultimately got what he wanted without breaking any of the system's guidelines. Even after David's passing, Dr. Kevorkian kept working on the machine. He reasoned that he could use it on the next patient that came his way. Over the next few months, he tinkered in his apartment. In the end, the machine wasn't anything special, a simple square frame where three IV bags could be placed. Two of the bags were connected to electromagnetically operated valves, wired to an electrical timer. It was triggered by a button that could be pushed by a patient. Once they pressed the button, the device released a series of drugs into a patient's veins, one at a time, killing them painlessly. In line with its function, Kevorkian first named it the Thanatron, which meant death machine in Greek. Now that it was complete, Dr. Kevorkian needed a patient. So in the fall of 1989, he took his invention to the press, trying to advertise it in medical society journals to draw attention from reporters. He didn't care if they came knocking at his door with criticisms. As long as he got publicity, he was convinced the right patient would eventually see it 
and come to him for help. The reviews were mixed. When Dr. Kevorkian talked about death during the interviews, he seemed blasé. It made people uncomfortable. But he didn't see any reason to dance around the issue. He insisted that people had a right to die, plain and simple. And he developed strict ethical requirements to decide which patients he assisted. Each one would be approved on a case-by-case basis. They needed to be suffering from an irreversible physical ailment. They had to have exhausted all of the available medical interventions, and they had to want to die. Most importantly, they needed to be in control of their fate at all times. Kevorkian's beliefs were simple, but the landscape was filled with complexities and nuance. His self-imposed ethical baselines definitely demonstrated a consideration for important medical principles, along with a distinct compassion. In fact, Kevorkian's foundational requirements for assisting in someone's death are closely aligned with those employed by the Dutch medical legal system then and now. However, among many other subtle oversights, regulations in the Netherlands dictate that physician-assisted deaths require consultations with at least one other outside physician. In this regard, Kevorkian took on the role of judge, jury, and executioner a little too zealously. Despite his somewhat unusual attitude about the subject, he must have had confidence in the fact that his ethics were fundamentally sound. He probably realized that he was laying groundwork on some level for future practitioners. When 54-year-old Janet Atkins came across Dr. Kevorkian's work in late 1989, she seemed to find his services fitting for her circumstances. She immediately contacted him. Their meeting would have ramifications that stretched far beyond their lifetimes. Up next, Dr. Kevorkian and Janet draw headlines for the Right to Die movement. Now, back to the story. In 1989, 61-year-old Dr. Jack Kevorkian met the patient that would change his life. 54-year-old Janet Atkins had read about his Thanatron machine and was intrigued that it offered a painless and dignified way to die. It probably wasn't a conversation that Janet could have imagined herself having a year earlier. She was a married mother of three grown sons who had taught English as a second language. But the past 12 months had turned her life upside down. According to her husband, Ron, it all started when she had trouble remembering a fact or where she placed something. She just chalked it up to getting older. But her memory worsened, to the point that reading became a struggle. Janet finally underwent medical tests, only to discover she had early-onset Alzheimer's. Unlike many other illnesses, there's no one test for Alzheimer's. We can now employ MRI exams that reveal anatomical brain changes associated with this disease, but there are still a lot of things that need to be considered and ruled out. 
Once someone's diagnosed with Alzheimer's, its rate of progression depends on their genetics, environment, and other health issues, including their age. For Janet, getting conclusive results here would have taken a while. Sadly, the future that awaited her was pretty far from comforting. When Janet finally heard her diagnosis, it was as though a bomb had detonated on the life she'd known, and there was nothing she could do about it. According to the doctors, there was no cure. If Janet was lucky, she'd have a few good years left. The invisible clock that she and the rest of us usually ignore now sat in front of her, ticking down. But she didn't fear death. She never had. Janet worried far more about what would happen to her as the Alzheimer's progressed. It would be a slow deterioration. She didn't want to lose herself that way. Her sons urged her to consider an experimental treatment her doctor had suggested. Janet wasn't so sure. At most, it would slow the disease. It seemed like a shot in the dark, and if it didn't work, more time would pass, allowing her mind to further decline. Dr. Kevorkian's physician-assisted death felt like a way to avoid this. He could spare her the inevitable tragedy of forgetting who her own family members were. So, in November of 1989, with the support of Ron, she reached out to him. But he was hesitant. While Janet did have an irreversible condition, it was a neurological illness. Dr. Kevorkian worried that lawyers might later question her mental capacity to make the decision that she didn't have the ability to consent. Dr. Kevorkian advised Janet to try the experimental treatment. She took his advice. Over the next six months, Janet took the medication and met with doctors to track any progress. She and her family must have hoped for the best, even if they knew the chances were slim. By April of 1990, however, doctors found no noticeable change in Janet's disease progression. The long shot had come up short. Though doctors estimated that Janet had three or four good years left, she didn't want to wait. She'd lived a fulfilled life with her husband and boys. She wanted to die while she could still take care of herself and recognize those around her. So Janet called Dr. Kevorkian again, urging him to help her. Anyone who knew Janet spoke of her strong spirit, and she was no less persistent when it came to her death. Despite his lingering concerns, Dr. Kevorkian agreed. They settled on a date in early June, about two months away. It would give Janet more time to consider her options while Kevorkian got to planning. Building the device was one thing, but there were still challenges ahead. Trickiest of all was finding a location to have the procedure. Dr. Kevorkian reached out to medical clinics, empty offices, EMT companies, and even a few private parks. Each turned him away when he told them his plans. Eventually, a friend of Kevorkian's offered up his house. 
but two weeks before Janet and her husband Ron were scheduled to fly to Michigan, that plan fell through. The friend had backed out at the last minute, likely fearing legal repercussions. Without a location, Kevorkian thought about cancelling the procedure. But Janet pushed back, insisting, I don't care where it is, I care how it is. Ron supported her. If that's what Janet wanted to do, he'd honor her wishes. Dr. Kevorkian agreed this time. Confident with her choice, Janet spent her final days at home spending time with her family, organizing her memorial, and prepping a week's worth of meals for her husband. Her loss would be devastating, but she wanted to make the transition as easy as possible for her loved ones. On Saturday, June 2nd, 1990, Janet and Ron met Dr. Kevorkian at a motel in Michigan. He talked with the pair before setting up a camera to tape an interview with the couple, anticipating a legal fight after Janet's death. In the 45-minute interview, Dr. Kevorkian paused several times, prompting Janet to acknowledge what illness she had and what she was agreeing to do. Janet did her best, but often looked to Ron for help answering some simple questions, like where their hometown of Portland, Oregon was located. Throughout the rest of the tape, Janet tried answering as many questions as possible, but came up short when it came to specifics. At times, she had trouble articulating her thoughts, probably due to her worsening Alzheimer's. Janet's struggles with Alzheimer's were typical. In patients with this disease, there's an overaccumulation of proteins called beta amyloid and tau in the brain. When too much of these toxic proteins are produced, they clump together and form plaques that get stuck between neurons and inhibit cellular functioning. High levels of tau proteins form into bunches, and these tangles make communication between neurons less effective. It's believed that, among other factors, the intricate relationship between the beta amyloid and tau proteins is a significant contributing factor to the progression of Alzheimer's. It's hard to say if Janet would have been of sound enough mind to make the decision to die, it really would have depended on the evolution of her illness. Either way, it was clearly important for Kevorkian to log her mental state on video just days before she died. When the interview was done, they made final arrangements. Janet would meet Dr. Kevorkian in a park on Monday, and he would help her to die. That Sunday, Janet and Ron enjoyed the end of their time together, a rare opportunity that many aren't lucky enough to receive. On Monday morning, the two said goodbye at the hotel. Janet didn't want her husband to see her death. Once at the park, Janet entered the back of Dr. Kevorkian's 1968 Volkswagen van where he had set up his machine. He'd worked to make the environment more comfortable, sewing new curtains to the back for improved aesthetics. But even with this small effort, the day of Janet Adkins' death wasn't perfect. Dr. Kevorkian became a bundle of nerves, 
While he prepared his machine, he spilled the vial of the drug that was supposed to render Janet unconscious. To get more, he had to drive 45 miles back to his home, causing a two-hour delay. When Dr. Kevorkian arrived back at the van, he finished setting up his machine while Janet watched. He placed all of the bags, one with saline, another with sodium pentothal, and finally, the one with potassium chloride. From there, he hooked Janet up to an electrocardiogram to monitor her heartbeat and attempted to place an IV in her arm. This would introduce the saline solution from the first of three IV bags. It took four times before he was successful, but once done, all Janet needed to do was hit the button. They practiced the process. Kevorkian advised her to hit the button hard at least three times when she was ready to ensure that the machine worked properly. Before Janet went ahead, he once again made sure this was what she wanted. She just thanked him. A few moments later, she hit the button. Not unlike other forms of euthanasia, Kevorkian's machine operated in stages. The Thanatron would have worked by first delivering an intravenous drip of a saline solution to make the vein patent or increase the flow and dilation in the vessel. Next, sodium pentothal, a rapid onset and short-acting barbiturate, would have been used to render the patient unconscious. Following this, potassium chloride would be used to stop the heart as this medication induces cardiac arrest by disrupting sodium and potassium ions that keep the ventricles pumping. If all went well, Janet's death in this situation would have been painless because of her unconscious state brought about by the sodium pentothal. Any complications that could have occurred here would have had to do with the dosing. These definitely weren't ideal conditions, Alistair, but by basic consideration, Kevorkian's machine would have worked. A few minutes later, Dr. Kevorkian checked on the electrocardiogram. He noticed some electronic heart activity and made sure the rest of the potassium chloride had entered Janet's body. Moments later, the machine showed a flat line. Janet was gone. Dr. Kevorkian promptly called the authorities. If anyone came to attack what he'd done, his voluntary cooperation would make him seem less guilty. And, after all, Dr. Kevorkian was never one to hide from controversy. When emergency services arrived, they found Janet in the back of the van with a note affirming her condition, consent to dying, and reasoning. But local media outlets presented their own story. They reported that Dr. Kevorkian had a hand in her passing, weaving a scary and salacious tale of a man with a killing machine. Kevorkian's decades of hard-headed rhetoric only further amplified their narrative. On June 8, 1990, four days after Janet's death, 
a court slapped Dr. Kevorkian with an injunction preventing him from using the machine while he was still under investigation. Authorities confiscated the Thanatron. Six months later, on December 3, 1990, prosecutors filed murder charges against Dr. Kevorkian. They cited a 1920 Michigan Supreme Court decision about a husband convicted of helping end his wife's life. As for Janet's family, Ron spoke to media outlets reaffirming his wife's wishes. He also read her suicide note and made it clear that the family supported Dr. Kevorkian's actions. While some may have expected a lengthy legal fight, the proceedings only lasted 10 days before the judge threw out the charges. As it turned out, Dr. Kevorkian hadn't violated any statute. Michigan had no law on the books that made it illegal to help others in their decision to die. It was a total victory for Dr. Kevorkian, one that he had worked tirelessly to ensure prior to assisting Janet. Still, the local authorities wouldn't rest. The district attorney's office filed civil charges against him aimed at preventing any further use of the Thanatron in Michigan. But Dr. Kevorkian was ready for a fight. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you so much, Alistair. We'll be back next week with part two of Dr. Jack Kevorkian's story. The doctor puts his freedom on the line to relieve the dying. Among the many sources we used, we found Ron Rosenbaum's article, Angel of Death, The Trial of the Suicide Doctor in Vanity Fair, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Robert Tyler Walker, with writing assistance by Lauren DeLille, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. For many, Sunday is a special day spent with family. That makes it the perfect time to check out the Spotify original from Parcast, Malicious Moms. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Every Sunday in this Parcast collection, join me for an intimate look at the matriarchs who were far more criminal than caring. Warning, this isn't your mother's podcast. Follow Malicious Moms free and only on Spotify.